do churches have checkpoints? Are there those mechanisms that churches put in place that restrict access and control, I'm going to say contraband. We'll explain that a little more as we go forward. It's a good question. And with that, I would say, well, let me just put it to you this way. Do churches have checkpoints? If I were to say to you that uh, you have a guest, okay, I'm not saying this, but if I were to say to you, we have a guest speaker today. This guest speaker is world known, uh, known around the world, world renowned. He uh, is actually in, sort of in our backyard. He pastors a little struggling cong- uh, congregation that's in Houston. It's on Highway 59 as you make your way towards the loop over there. Uh, and they probably run, I don't know, tens of thousands on any given Sunday. And so this particular pastor, who is not Baptist, is going to be speaking to us today. What are the chances we would have a deacon's meeting this afternoon about whether or not I could stick around? And I could give you lots of other examples. I'll just leave that one hanging out there and say, welcome to John's third sign as we work our way through the gospel of John. And John writes this theological account of the life of Jesus And he lays out for us this particular sign. It's number three. It's in John chapter five. And with this sign, John turns a corner in the way we get this presentation of Jesus. And I'll elaborate on that as we go. But join with me. John chapter five, I'll begin reading in verse one. We'll go through verse 18. And there we find this. And after this, now I should stop and say that John now turns a corner geographically also. Jesus has been in Galilee, and now he's back down in Jerusalem, and it's a particular time, it's a feast time, and it's Sabbath to be exact. And so verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so with this now, we find in the title of the message today is Signs of Division. John is laying out these signs, these pointers, these indicators, miracles we would call them, that point out that Jesus is not some ordinary guy. By the time we get to the end of John's gospel, he will have made his case in no uncertain terms that this Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah. But John's layout for us, as I have said now for three weeks and now the fourth, is John continues to lay these things out, and as he lays out a sign, it puts us in a crisis of belief. What do you believe about this Jesus, and how much do you believe? So let's start today by looking at the miracle itself and some of the things that revolve around this. And I just need to let you know as we go today that I'm really going to take on a a segment of the population in the church of our day. Probably, to be uh, more precise, this is not just in our day. This is a segment of the population of a church from time that the church was instituted. It is all through this passage, this group that we would call the religionists, the ones who follow religion as a matter of course. And so we look at this and the first thing that we do is we are, the first thing that we see as we come to this is that Jesus goes places where the religionists won't go. Notice again and we, in these first four verses that uh, John is careful to help give us a little bit of explanation in verse 2 about where Jesus is and where all of this takes place. He calls it by the sheep gate. There's this pool that is called Bethesda. Teresa and I had the opportunity to go to this very spot when we went to, uh, to Israel a number of years ago now. Uh, and you actually have to go down to it. It's not at street level. and You have to kind of walk down into this area. It's on the northeastern part of the Temple Mount. And in this day that John writes this, uh, uh, scholars tell us that there was a small hole in the north, uh, uh, in the, excuse me, in the north wall of the temple area there. And it was in that area that they would allow sheep to come in to go to this particular pool in order to be washed and cleaned before those same sheep were taken up to be sacrificed at the temple. Now, let me do this for you for a second. That, That all sounds great. Uh, but let's put it down where you get it on the sense level. You ever been around a bunch of sheep? Now, it doesn't take very many sheep to be around before you start recognizing them that they smell rough. And in this day especially, those sheep had to be shepherded by somebody, and the shepherds probably smelled worse than the sheep did. And in this area... That was this, if you will, a cleansing pool, a baptizing pool, we might even say, uh, that was regularly frequented by these sheep coming in who were about to be slaughtered for the sacrifices. It was that area where these people, uh, let's, let's put a label on them. We find what scripture says there and that they're invalid, etc. But these are the forgotten people. These are the people that couldn't be where everybody else was because they had infirmities. They had these things that separated them from society. And in that group of people is this one guy who for 38 years, it says, was locked into that prison, if you will. 
The prison of his body that didn't allow him to go through life like everybody else did. He found himself there day in, day out, just waiting for his opportunity to get into this miraculous healing when the angel stirred the water. Jesus approaches him about that. You want to be healed? He said, well, I never, I can't get down there. Somebody always beats me to it. He was locked as a nobody in Jewish society. Jesus goes to him. I'll say more about that in a moment, but let's make sure that we get the picture on this because it's the Sabbath and it's a feast time. Jesus takes his disciples. I wonder what was going through their minds and in their discussions as they're working their way down to this place that no upstanding Jewish citizen would have been dreaming about going to at that time. After all, you go down there and you get ceremonially unclean. You can't go do the worship stuff of the feast. Scholars tell us that no dignified person in Jewish life would have found themselves at that spot on that day, except Jesus. So one of the things that we need to make sure that we catch here is that overriding truth that says that you are neither too dirty nor too weak nor too lost for Jesus to care about you. He always cares. And when nobody else in Jewish religion would go to where these people were on that particular day, Jesus intentionally goes to that spot. Imagine what was going through that guy's mind as Jesus was talking to him. Clearly, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He might have heard something about this Jesus, the sign worker, the miracle worker, but but he doesn't seem to recognize who he is. So we don't know what was going through his mind on the front end of it, but you get a pretty good idea on the back end that everything changes after 38 years, a lifetime of being a nobody. There are no nobodies with Jesus. And if you came in here today and you walked in here, you're not even sure what you're doing here, but you know that life is not what it could be. Let me just kind of right back and push you into this story to let you know Jesus has something for you. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how much wrong stuff, bad stuff you've done. If you knew my background, you would wonder what I'm doing up here. And let me just settle it for you. It's because of Jesus and no other reason. You're never too dirty for him. But here's the problem with that. Religionists communicate otherwise. It's those people who are committed to religion and safeguarding a set of stuff, whether it's ritual or doctrines. Now, be careful with this, and I know that I need to be careful with this, so don't make it sound like I'm saying something I'm not. But the reality is those religionists of our day would love to keep people out. They're the checkpoint. They're the ones who say to people, you can't be here because you're a nobody. Jesus doesn't buy into that. And he circumvents their whole system by walking to the place where hurting people were. And he still does that. Well, let me just keep going because I don't want to be... I, I, I could, this, this, sermon, uh, this passage argues for so many in-depth conversations. Let me just see if I can move a little further down now. Here's the second part of it. Jesus first goes to where religion won't go. Here's the second part of it. The past is not the future. Verses 5 through 7 here, we see that something's going on with this guy. He has 
probably reached close to life expectancy by the time this happens in his life. In other words, for 38 years, the better part of his entire life in that time and space has been spent in this hopeless uh, situation. That's his past on this particular day. He's, he's endured a life of being a nobody as we've already talked about, but, but that's all locked in the past because on this particular day, when Jesus shows up for him, hopelessness dissipates. This is a day that changes his future. No more of the, oh, you're the guy who can't get to the water. We don't know the conversations that happened around that, but all of those people were needy. All of those people who were down trying to get into the water when it ruffled like it did, all of those people, uh, they needed help. They wanted help. A few of them got help. But most of them were locked into hopeless situations. And for this guy on this day, he steps up to life. I, I think it's interesting the exchange that he has with Jesus here. First of all, you notice what Jesus does with him first. He asks him a question that seems out of character. Do you want to be healed? You put yourself, remember what I've said before, a great point of Bible study is put yourself into the story. And so you lay on those steps in that stinky area. You lay there for 38 years And have somebody ask you if you want to be healed. What's the answer to that? My answer is, duh. But you know, Jesus is smart. We want to give Jesus a lot of credit here. He is the the psychologist extraordinaire. Because he comes and he puts the guy on the spot. Do you want to be healed? You know what I found in life? Some people don't want to be healed. Some people really love the drama of being the needy person in the room. Now, stop throwing elbows at your husband. We had this situation in church I I came from. This is years ago. Matter of fact, I was was not senior pastor of that church at that time. I I don't remember if I was a youth minister or associate pastor, but uh, one of those positions that I held at one point. We had this guy in town. And the people in the church lovingly began to refer to him as total package. And the reason we did that was because this guy was homeless. Now, we used to get a lot of homeless people down in the valley because there is really no winter down there. Uh, the winter that they do get gets maybe into the 40s a couple of days a year. And uh, a really harsh winter, it might dip below freezing a, a degree or two once. But... Uh, so it's a place where during the wintertime, a lot of people who were really down on the luck would go down there. And, and this guy lived in the local park. He had a mobile home that actually was a grocery cart. And he pushed it all over town and it was piled up. And he, he had the total package with him. Everything of his life was wrapped up right there. And to be fair to our people in our church, even the religionists in our church, well, maybe not them, but they were certainly there. Uh, we love the fact that this guy was at church on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, Total Package was there every time the doors were open. More than once, we would be in staff meeting during the middle of the week, and he would just walk in and barge in the staff meeting. Interesting, interesting dynamics with him. One of the men in our church owned a company that hired laborers on a regular basis. 
And he went to Total Package one day and he said, hey man, you're here all the time. We're glad for that. We talk to him about Jesus all the time. And uh, this guy said, uh, I have a company that we're looking for help and I just thought I would give you a job and help you get back up on your feet. To which the guy said, oh no, I don't want a job. My life's perfect the way it is. Now we could talk a lot about contentment with that. That's probably another sermon. But I want to zero in on the reality that some people don't really want help because they love, thrive off of drama. Stir in the pot. So it's interesting that Jesus puts this guy on the spot. Do you want help? And he makes the guy, so I say he's a great psychologist, Jesus is. He makes the guy come to grips with This has been, hear me carefully now, this has been so much a part of my identity, this illness, that if I give it up, I'm going to lose that. Do I want help or not? You see how the guy responds to Jesus? Did you catch that? He answers a question that Jesus did not ask. Jesus' question is, do you want help? That, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a yes or no answer, right? But what the guy does is he diverts the question. Now, whether he does that on purpose or whether it's one of those internal things he's not really aware of, he comes back and he answers a question that Jesus does not ask, and his answer is, or I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. When I start to go, how he did that, I don't know, rolled it, I don't know, but somebody else would get there before him. Well, that's all well and good, but Jesus didn't ask him that. What does that tell us about him, I wonder? Let's pull it off of him and let's put it onto us in application form now. When you are that person and you're needy, where do you look for the fix? Where do you place your hope when things are spinning out of control in your life? Now, the reality is that in our day and age, many of us, maybe most of us, at one point or another, we default to, okay, things are not going well, I better check my bank account. Or I need to call my insurance agent who's going to make it all right. Or I'm going to retreat into my family because I think I find safety there. When you're the needy person, when things are not going according to plan for you, do you want to get better? Or do you slip into some false hope and some false construct of help? I say all of that because we're going we're gonna to get to the religionists here in a few moments. We, we haven't even gotten to that part of the message yet. But um, I think before we do that, one of the things we need to recognize is that many people, and now I'm trying to be fair to the religionists that I'm fixing to go after, but many people slip back in when things are not going well and the world gets a little bit shaky, they slip back into a religious system that is not about a relationship with Jesus. It's about a system. 
And so things get out of control. And so I slip back into this nice, neat, little safe zone that I have. And I have a handful of people that are in there with me. And, and we call it church. Um, but it's a system. And, and Jesus may or may not even be there on that particular occasion. But we still feel better because it's our system. So Jesus asks him, do you want help? He gives an answer that has very little to do with all of that. But whatever else happens, remember the past is not the future. And because Jesus steps into his life, even though he gives an answer that is technically true, but not on point, his future changes that day. So for you today, especially if you're one of those who came in, And you're emotionally exhausted. And life for you has wrung every bit of emotional energy out of you that you ever thought you could have. Or you're physically really tired of the fight. Physical pain has a way of bleeding us dry in our spirits. Speaking of spirits, maybe you came in and the spiritual vitality factor in your life is at an all-time low. I think Jesus would say to you today, do you want to feel better? Do you want to get better? Do you want help? Jesus is still capable. Just like he was for this guy, he is for you. And even though you may not give the right answer, He still steps into the reality for you and he offers life for you. So before we go any further with any of the other stuff, let me get you to respond to that. Not not verbally, not outwardly, but deep in your spirit. Where is Jesus for you today? Have you opted for help and for coping mechanisms from some false religious system? Or is Jesus front and center in your life today? All that other stuff may carry a little bit of assistance for you for a short period of time, but the help that Jesus gives is eternal. It's not just eternal in time, it's eternal in value. Nothing fixes like Jesus does. So we get to the message part of this now, and this is verses 10 through 18, and this is where the turn happens. When I came to start studying this particular passage, getting ready for this sermon, I had a number of questions that came at me. There's so much in here, we could preach this one passage for probably a month. There are questions that I have about some of this stuff. Jesus says, for instance, to him, now go and sin no more. Uh, Okay, what are you saying with that? And what are you not saying with that is probably a better question to ask. But I'm not going to deal with that this morning. That's for your own personal time this week. There's a lot of questions in this passage for me. Here's one for you. Why did John choose this as a sign? Because I want you to notice something before we go any further. I'll give you a couple other questions I have about it as we go here. But uh, why did he choose this one? You realize that this guy did not return to Jesus in a way that said, thank you, or I believe in you, or I'm going to follow you, or anything like that. You would think that John, if he's putting together a list of these signs that are indicative of people seeing what Jesus did and and, uh, relating to him on the level of what he has done for them, you would think that he would put that in here somewhere. 
But apparently this guy didn't do that. As far as we know, this guy was never a follower of Jesus after this. So why did John put that here? Well, that's caused me to dig a little bit. First nine verses might allow for that to be a really good question. 10 through 18 kind of nail it down as to why it did. And here's the answer that I came to on that question. This sign brings to a head some of the differing opinions about Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is one of those signs that may not be about the miracle at all, and it's more about the setting of the miracle. With this sign, with this account, John's gospel now takes an ominous turn. There is this opposition now that bubbles to the surface. Let me give you a couple of verses that help underscore where we're talking about here. We look down a little bit, verse 16. And this was why, now this is because he healed on the Sabbath. I'll come back to that in a second. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Word persecuting is an interesting word there. The nuance of that word in this particular case is prosecuting Jesus. You see, the claims that they make, the charges that they make against Jesus here are violating the Sabbath. And you can go back over into the Old Testament and to the law and you can see all some of the things that they would do to people who were found guilty of violating the Sabbath. Let me boil it down to this for us. If in fact Jesus violated the Sabbath, he was disqualified to be Messiah. Furthermore, he was disqualified to purchase your sins penalty so that you might have life. So I'm not going to say that Jesus violated the Sabbath, but they did. Which means we probably need to get to the bottom of that. So let me do that. By the way, these are the religionists. Okay, These are the checkpoint people. These are the people who say, no, you don't meet these criteria, so you can't go any further than this. Many churches station these people at the doors. And so they look and they make sure that so-and-so can't get in. I'll go back to another church that I serve. Well, it's the same one. We're going to be going down to that area. I'll just give you some, some insights into the area we're talking about going to. Um, when I went to that church as a youth minister in 19, none of your business, um, um, that church was known as the white church. Now, when the people in the neighborhood called it the white church, and they did, they called it that to, to my face, so I know they did this, uh, they were right in identifying it as the white church because the brick of the church was white. But they weren't talking about the brick. They were talking about what was inside of the church. And it was predominantly, I mean like far and away, predominantly Anglo people. Now, the reason that was an issue is because that church was located in the center of a sea of Hispanic people. Population demographics, by far, 95% or more were Hispanic, and yet the church was far and away Anglo. You have to ask yourself in a deal like that, how could that be? And part of the answer is religionists are really good at checkpoints. So I began to live this out with that church. As a youth minister in that church, we started, you know, my job is to deal with teenagers. And uh, at that time, it was to deal with these teenagers who were the children of people in the church. 
And so I came in and we emphasized and built a whole plan of discipleship to train those teenagers to grow up to be really good functioning church members later, but also Christians today, salt and light and all that kind of stuff. And so we train them to that and then they start doing that. And so these teenage kids start going out into the community and they go to school where these Anglo kids may be the only Anglo kid in an entire classroom of people. And they start saying to their friends, hey, man, you need to come to church. We're doing this. And so they start reaching their friends. The friends start coming to church. And all of a sudden, the Anglo youth group becomes a different look. And see, this is where religionists have problems. Because religionists, by definition, want to control things according to their parameters of their religion. So these kids start reaching across the spectrum of the high school and junior high. Now, y'all remember, many of you um, been in high school not, not that long ago. Many of us remember we went to high school, but not much more than that. But one of the things you need to remember, there are there subgroups in any school. Okay? There's the athletes, and there's the band people, and there's the choir people, and they're the low end of the totem pole. My wife was a choir person, so that's my shot of the day. Um, uh, and then there's the rednecks, and then there's the freaks at our school. It was the freaks, you know, the dope smokers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so you have these subgroups, and they're all over. You know, I mean, you got all these, and none of them cross. I mean, you know, you, you can bump up against another group, but you can't really, you know, the rare person was in more than one group. So these kids we had in our youth group start going out and they start reaching across those subgroups and so we start having this come in. So not only are Hispanic kids coming in, we have these different kids coming in. And that was bad enough until one of the subgroups that we started reaching was the skateboard crowd. Ooh. Cue the creepy music, right? Um, and one of our religionists... Bless her heart. Caught me one day as I was going into worship service. And she's livid. She was 185 years old. And, uh, or at least her thinking was. And uh, she's livid. Do you know what these teenagers have done? Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, I probably know more what they've done than you do. But she said, one of those one of those kids, you know, the, that long-haired kid, he brought a Coke into the worship service. <gasps> You're kidding. We should kill him. <laughs> Religionists, hear me very carefully. Religionists don't care about people. They care about religion. And woe to the person who crosses from being a person into violating their religion. Okay, now I'm hoping that this is starting to connect a little bit about checkpoints in our churches. Because every church has religionists. Just so you know, I don't have people in my mind that I'm thinking about here. That's not the deal. I, I, I want us to get what's happening. And these people, let's put it together. These people were more concerned about a guy carrying a mat than they were amazed about a 38-year lame guy being healed. You see, religionists don't recognize or appreciate 
the work of God. It's about safeguarding the religion. Let me go back to that story about the teenagers. You know what really brought that whole thing to a head for us as a church down there? One of the deacons came forward and he was upset because his daughter wanted to date one of those skaters. So how is it with you? Do we cross lines that make you understand better why we do push some people aside and make them nobodies? Do you feel the need to shrink back and protect and set parameters that say, well, I'll quote from one of my favorite all-time movies, none shall pass. I'm grateful that Jesus would have none of that religion stuff here. He goes to a place that the religionists would not go. And Oh, I forgot to tell you this. You go and look through the Gospels and all of the accounts of healings that we have with Jesus in the Gospels. Um, one scholar that I was doing some research with pointed out that most of the time that Jesus heals somebody in the Gospels, those people have come to him. But the only times in the Gospels that we see Jesus healing somebody where he goes to them, he does it on the Sabbath. In other words, to take one of the pages out of the road trammel past, to those religionists, Jesus says, in your eye. You've got to ask why. Okay? It's not enough to make the observation and to be you know, like charged by the moxie that Jesus shows here. You have to ask why. Why would Jesus do that? Knowing that it was going to put him in the crosshairs of the religion crowd. Why would he do that? Now, I think this is where John says, here's your sign. Because what... John does in putting this here, he's, he's back and forth. For, for one thing, geographically, he's back and forth. And so Jesus goes to Cana and he does these, uh, in Galilee, and he does these miracles. And people there go, that's awesome. But then John pulls him back down. The second time he's done that, he pulls him back down to Jerusalem where the religionists have a fort. And John says, and here Jesus does this, and he gets persecuted, prosecuted. And ultimately, the sinister turn here is that ultimately, this group of religionists will kill Jesus for this stuff. Now, none of us are Jesus, and we should make sure that we clarify that. But let me tell you something. Religionists love to kill people who won't play their game. And the sad thing is that the very nature of playing their game kills people. How many people, and what is the segment of the population out there today, would never feel welcome in a church in our area today? 
I promise you they're out there. A question that comes to my mind regularly if I watch the news, which I try to do, try to just at least keep an eye on what's going on around us. How could we be at a point where the vast majority of our population as a country have rejected Christianity? I think the answer to that is that religionists won the day for a while and they killed a bunch of people. But the good news is that Jesus is no religionist, nor does he want you to be. As a matter of fact, I'll close with these three quick principles. If you happen to be one of those who is a religionist today and you have your nice little system and certain people don't fit into that and so you're the checkpoint that keeps them from the church or from life through, through Christ, I think that John would say to you today, if that's you, that though you might love it, God is not impressed with your religion. As a matter of fact, if you really want to get right down to it, Jesus stepped into that religion intending to overthrow it. Of course, he fills it full. He fulfilled, Scripture tells us, all of the law and the prophets. And so it's not like he's coming in and saying, we're going to do something totally different. He takes us back to what God intended in the first place. And that is that we might have life. And so we come to this. And here's another thing. God, uh, God will not endorse or adopt your standards as a religionist. He won't. He expects us to adopt his standards. And his standards, let me just give you a few. For one of them, his standards are that we love your neighbor as yourself. His standard is that we be salt and light in a very dark world. His standard is that we go into all the world and make disciples. His standard says, I came so that you, collective, plural, you, but also very individual you, might have life. We're his agents of life. So instead of being agents like a checkpoint in South Texas that keeps people from going any further, we're agents of life that says to all people, especially the down and out people, come on to life. Jesus died for you. So the final principle is don't overlook people. Even if you're not a religionist, don't overlook people. It is so easy in our day and age to fill and to pack our time and our schedules with stuff. But almost none of us go through a day without crossing paths with people. Those are people that Jesus loves as much as he loves you. So let's be light. Let's be life agents. Let's share life. And for those who are religionists, never mind, let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to take this difficult message and bring it home. Help us to own what is ours to own in this, to find ourselves in the words here, whether we're the one who needed somebody else, we're those 
religious leaders who decide to take Jesus on because he didn't meet their criteria. Change lives today. For those who need you in their lives, never come to the point of accepting you as their Savior. We pray that you would give them a a level of discomfort even now that would um, move them to listen to what you're saying, to embrace life. We give you this time. We ask your spirit to work through us and through this room in the hearts of people and change lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.